So as you come in tonight, there should be a handout in the back. Hopefully you all got this. And so if you didn't get one, they're on the music stands back there as you come in. Now, for my own sanctification, apparently the Lord had some humor this week. I proofed this thing so many times. We hit print. Yes, I print them all out for you. And the last thing I looked in, it says week two. This is week three. So, this is, so if you just want to make a scratch, that I was like, I just can't from a stewardship reason reprint all these packets to change number two to three, though the thought did cross my mind. And so um, it is there. Just realize this is week three. Tonight we're talking about God's spirituality or invisibility. And I'm so glad you're back tonight. I, I hope your minds are hurting a little bit from all that we're talking about on this. So we talked about God's unity. We talked about God's independence. We talked about God's eternality. We're talking about God's creative acts in Genesis 1. And it makes our brains hurt. My friends, that's good for us. And so I want to start tonight with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He was this fantastic pastor in the 1800s in England. And he says this, There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can comprehend and grapple with, and then we, kind of feel, we, and then we feel a kind of self-contentment and go on our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, find that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. I just thought that's just a helpful thing to think about as we study who God is. This is a subject so vast, so deep, our plumb line cannot sound its depth, our eagle eye cannot see its height. And so this is a study that should be fostering in us much humility. As I was reading on the attributes and I've read different books in the several years, there was a story in one of them. I don't know if it's a real story or a fictitious story, but it kind of makes a point in an anecdotal way of what Spurgeon said. And the story is there was a king who wanted to know who God was. And so he asked one of the wise men in his kingdom, who is God? The wise man said, well, I need a day to think about that and I'll come back to you tomorrow. So he goes, so the king comes back tomorrow. What's the answer? Who is God? He goes, well, king, I need two days actually now to think about that answer. So the king grants the request, he goes away. Two days later, he gets summoned back, and he goes back to the king. The king says, okay, who is God? He says, actually, I need four days more to think about the answer to your question. Four days pass, the king summons him, and the king says, okay, now, who is God? He goes, actually, I need eight days more to think about the answer to your question. And the king, in frustration, asks him, why do you keep delaying? And here was his answer, because the more I think about God, the less I hope to understand him. Because he, the more he realized who God was, the more he realized how infinite God's wisdom is and how much we really do not know. And so really, as we study these things, it should lead us to humility. There's a second thing it really should lead us to. You see right there that quote from John Todd on the front. John Todd was a, bab, was a pastor in the 1800s in the U.S. And he said here, And we shall find the more we think about God, the more we shall be lost in wonder. And that's really the hope of us studying the attributes of God. Not only does it foster humility as we think of God's greatness, it fosters within us a sense of awe and wonder at who God is, which is what Psalm 33.8 tells us there. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So that's what I pray that this study does for each of us as we think through these things, is that it will help us have humility to realize how infinite God is and how small we are, and it will help foster us a sense of awe at who God is. So before we jump into the new attribute for tonight, let's do a quick review there on the top of that second page of your handout here. So we've talked about what the attributes are, not the list of them, but the definition. So from what we've talked about, how would you define what do we mean when we say God's attributes? What are some things that you would use to describe what we mean by attributes of God? You want to throw out any phrases or thoughts on that? How would you define attributes to other people? Yeah, there's communicable. Yeah, there's some of the attributes he shares with us. What's the other type? 
and communicable ones he does not share with us, okay? Now, broader even than that, what is an attribute when we describe God? His character, yeah, his character, his nature, or something else. Any other phrases come to mind on that? Yes, how we describe him as nature. It's what sets him apart. Remember the definition we used the last two weeks is the things apart from which he would not be worthy of worship and service. As I think about it, it's what makes God, God. And so as we discuss God's attributes, you see here in your handout, one thing for us to make sure we remember, we're not projecting our attributes onto God. This is not us going, oh, we love other people. Oh, God must love other people. This is not us trying to project our experience onto who God is. We are seeking as best we can with our very limited, very finite minds to describe God. And here's the key, as he has chosen to reveal himself to us in Scripture. We want to study Genesis to Revelation and see how God has described himself to us as he has revealed himself. Without his revelation, we have no hope of knowing him. So as we study the attributes, it's all about God's self-revelation of who he is. We've seen three so far in the last two weeks. The first was God's unity. You remember what God's unity was? He's everything together. Yeah, God is not divided into parts, right? He's fully all the attributes all the time. God doesn't change from Old Testament to New Testament. God doesn't have days where he's wrathful and days where he's loving. He's fully all of his attributes all the time. He's not divided into parts. We then moved on last week to God's independence. What does God's independence mean? What does God need? Nothing. God needs absolutely nothing. He is self-existent and needs nothing for his being, nothing to do what he wants to do. He's totally independent. And we saw last week he is eternal, which means he's outside of what? He's outside of time. And that one just makes my brain hurt when I think about God being timeless. No beginning, no end, seeing all time equally vividly. And just as we think on that, it is so different than anything we can experience. And so it is, these are we're all incommunicable attributes of God. And just there you see, before we move on, what I put, put on the front, our study of God should lead us to greater humility, all and worship. That's what we desire to happen as we think about these things. So we come tonight to the fourth attribute. This is also, in my mind, an incommunicable attribute of God, one that's very unique to him. He does not share with his creation. That is what we say God is spirit. Now, this attribute is trying to answer the question, what is God made of? So you're trying to deal with that. What does God's nature matter? What is he made of here? So is he made of energy? Well, no, he made energy. Is he made of matter? No, he made matter. So what is he made of? And here's how some people have tried to answer this question. James Boyce, who was one of the founders of Southern Seminary, where I went, he said this, he is a pure spirit without outward form or material organization. So God is a spirit. He doesn't have any matter. He doesn't have outward form, material organization. Herman Bavink, a theologian, said God is a substance, though I'm not sure that's a good word, but God is a substance distinct from the universe immaterial, invisible to human eyes, and without composition or extension. So notice that word, immaterial, invisible. He's not made of anything. Mark Jones, God is not corporeal or in possession of a body or material nature. Or the Westminster Confession of Faith says, There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions. Or Wayne Grudem, one of my favorite theologians, says, God's spirituality means that God exists. It is a being that is not made of any matter, has no parts or dimensions, is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses, and is more excellent than any other kind of existence. Now, I like where Grudem goes that because he takes it beyond just the he's not matter. to this is, be, this is more excellent than anything else that exists or has been made. 
There's a difference to him. But I think the best definition of God is spirit comes from an old hymn, 1867, a guy by the name of Walter Smith. You perhaps know this from your childhood. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, and light and accessible hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. So perhaps I think that's the best definition of God is spirit, God is invisible, that he's immortal, invisible, God only wise. And so because that, you see that consistency through the definitions, a lot of authors would not call this God's spirituality. They would say God's invisibility. But whatever term you see, it's talking about the same thing right there. And you see this in scripture. Turn the page there to the top of page three. God is described as a spirit and invisible throughout different parts of scripture. There's many we could look at, but just four right here. John chapter four, verse 24. This is the context of the woman at the well that Jesus is talking to her. And he tells her, God is spirit. Therefore, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now here, spirit is not talking about the Holy Spirit who we saw in the creation account last week. This is talking about God's nature as being invisible. He is a spirit. He is not made of matter. He's immaterial. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. That, again, invisibility. The only God, Jesus, who was talking about here, who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. So our hope of knowing who God is because of who Christ is. 1 Timothy 1, 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Or 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen, not just who has never seen, or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So God is spirit. God is invisible. He cannot be seen by our eyes. He cannot be seen by our bodily senses here. So what does this attribute mean? Let's kind of unpack this because, again, this is so different than our experience in the world being material beings. So number one, this attribute means God is immaterial. Quite simply, that means God is not made of anything. He just is. So the question, if a kid ever asks, what is God made of? He's made of nothing. He just is. I love the contrast in Isaiah 31. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. There's a contrast that's being set up here. So God is not a God who has flesh. He is spirit. He is different than humanity. Or Acts chapter 17, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So we can't visualize God with anything that he has created because he's so different than anything that he has made. And like the Gruden quote, his existence is far superior to anything he has made. Now this truth that God is immaterial is significant because it means, number two, God has no limitations. Now this goes back to that first attribute we talked about, the unity of God. Because God is unity, he's fully all the attributes all the time. And the other part of that, if you think back to the first week, which seems like a long time ago already, the unity of God means all the attributes explain all the other attributes. They're all part of who he is, so they're all intertwined and interlinked. And so because God is spirit, first of all, time has no limits on God. What we saw last week, God is eternal because time has no limits on him. Now to try to explain that, James Boyce again says this, to have an omnipresent and eternal mode of existence is possible for a spiritual nature because spirit has not of necessity succession of time and specific limitations of location. So just pause right there and try to get our minds around that. We are limited to one place at one time. As much as we wish we could clone ourselves and be multiple places at times to get more done, we can't. We are material. Therefore, material things can only be at one place at one point in time at any given moment. But not God. He's eternal. And, he's et and one way he's able to be eternal is because he's a spirit. He's not bound to a specific place. 
goes on in this quote here to say, but these of necessity, these things of being bound to place and time, belong to matter. It is of necessity that it has a here, not an everywhere. Spirit alone can combine the two, the here and the everywhere. It is also of necessity that matter exists in time. We know that it exists now, that it existed yesterday, that it may exist tomorrow. But with the eternal God, there can be no succession of time. And consequently, he can have no material nature, but must be purely spiritual. So as you try to get your mind around that, you chew on that one as you go to sleep tonight, right? Yeah, let's try to unpack that one some more. But God's spirit is intimately tied to the fact that God is eternal and outside of time. Likewise, because God is spirit, he needs nothing and is also unchanging. I put there he's independent and omnipotent. I meant to put he's independent and immutable, so he is omnipotent, but he's unchanging, which we'll get to that one in a few weeks here. But because God is spirit, he needs nothing and nothing can shape or change him. Again, to quote Boyce, he says, if God has a body, he's being ca- he is capable of being influenced from without. For all matter is thus capable of being influenced or being moved, divided, added to, and diminished. Now just pause there. We're made out of matter so we can be influenced, right? You come push me and I might fall over. You can, I can sneeze on you and you get sick. Like Because we're made of matter, we are influenced and we can influence other matter as well. Because God is not made of matter, nothing can shape or change him. He cannot be added to, moved, divided, anything like that because he is spirit. The quote continues, but if thus capable of influence from without, he is not independent. Therefore, the independent God cannot be material. Do you see all this is intertwined? God is spirit. God is eternal. God is unchanging. God needs nothing. All that has to do with his nature. He is spirit and it's all part of who he is. So turn the page there. This means that we'll get to this in a few weeks. God cannot be considered in terms of space because he's not made of matter. God is what we say omnipresent. That means God is everywhere all of the time. I love Psalm 139 right here. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. Because God is spirit, he is fully everywhere all the time. So think back to Sunday morning. We talked about those 100,000 million galaxies, right? We saw pictures of some of those 100,000 million galaxies. God is in all of those all the time, and he is here with us now. There's nowhere that God is not. Everywhere that exists has God's presence right there. He's everywhere all the time because he's omnipresent. Matter cannot do that. God is spirit, therefore he is everywhere all the time. But yet the counter to that is no point of space can fully contain him. Though God is everywhere, there's not any one place that can fully capture who God is. 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. This is Solomon, his prayer of dedication of the temple. And he's saying, God, like, I can't contain you here. You're so much vaster, so much bigger than anything we can make. Even the most beautiful palace on earth, God is bigger. No one point in space can contain him. And I love how it says in Isaiah 66 this, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Heaven is his throne, earth is footstool. Everywhere God is there and no one point can fully contain him because he's so great. If you remember what we shared before that the universe is the arena that shows God's glory. It takes thousands, tens of thousands of people to fill arenas to try to show the glory of a certain school the entire universe is necessary to show the glory of God because he's so big and so glorious and so majestic. And then number four, God has always existed 
this way. We call this God's immutability. We're going to come to that in three weeks, but it means that God is unchanging. That God was always spirit, and he always will be spirit. This is his nature. This is not something that he began this way at creation. God has always been, before there was even time, spirit. Now, the reality for us, friends, is how does this affect us? This is not just some coffee shop discussion. So how does the reality that God is spirit, that God is invisible, shape my life and your life? First of all, it means we cannot see God. The very obvious thing we've seen in all these verses, we cannot see God. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is Moses exhorting the people. He's warning the people of idolatry. And he reminds them of when they're at the base of Mount Sinai being given the law. And he says this, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form it was only a voice. So in one of these places of incredible revelation of God, of giving the law to his people, there was no physical manifestation where they could see God. They could only hear his voice. Job chapter 9, verse 11. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. And in John 1.18, we looked at this one earlier. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So we cannot see God. That leads to number two here. It is a serious sin to try to create an image or a likeness of God. It is a serious sin for us to try to create an image of God, some likeness of him. We're not allowed to think of God's being as similar to anything else in creation. Now, why is that the case for him? Why is it so wrong for us to try to fashion an image of God? Because there's nothing we can make, nothing we can dream up, nothing we can design that would even begin to do justice to who God is. Any image we try to concoct of who God is would misrepresent him, would limit him, would belittle him. We could take the purest ingredients of the purest gold and diamonds in the world with the best master artist craftsman to try to give us an image of God and it would fall so short of him it would belittle him. We cannot create images of who God is. And we see all this throughout scripture, the warnings, Exodus 24 and 5. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath it is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And we're going to come back to this in, in a, really November, I think it is. We talk about God's jealousy for his name and for his fame. This is not just a sin, though, for us to make images of God. It's also foolishness. Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping so it's not just a sin to try to, to, to have a picture of God. It's a, fo- a foolish thing for us because we cannot do that. It's not just those warnings there. This truth that God is spirit, God is invisible, is a source of incredible hope for us here. Number three there on page five it means God is always with us, friends. No matter where we go or what we endure, what we're walking through, God is always with us. We see this in John chapter 14. I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the world doesn't see the Spirit of God. He's a spirit, but yet he's right here with us, so that God is always with us. Matthew 28, Jesus' great commission to us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching the reserve all that I command you, and behold, stop, take notice of this, don't miss this, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the fact that God is spirit means that he is with all of his people. It's not like 
oh, look, you know, there's Bill going over there. I really like Bill, so I'm going to go make sure my spirit's with him. And uh, we'll just have to leave. We'll have to leave Jason and Aaron over here on there. They'll be okay today. I'm going to follow them today. Like, that's not how it works. God is spirit, so he can fully be with the givens and fully be with the grosses at all the time. There, he doesn't have to divide and pick favorites. He is with all of his people all of the time. There's nowhere we can go where God is not right there with us, whatever we are facing. Now, that gives us some massive implications for our life. First of all, I see from Deuteronomy 3, it means we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear here. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. For so often in my own life, when I get afraid and fearful of what other people are thinking, if I get fearful of circumstances beyond my control, it's because I'm imagining a future without God in it. Imagine what would happen without God right there because I've lost sight of the fact the invisible God is with me. And so fear grips my heart because I've forgotten his presence right with me. But if we understand God is spirit and God is everywhere and God is with me always, then that drives out the fear that can plague our hearts. Likewise, it's not just that we don't have fear, we get joy. If we understand God is spirit and is always with us, then there's great joy in that. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, and we just saw in these other verses, his presence is always with us. In your presence, there is not just a little joy. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, friends, when I get down in the dumps and I'm sad and frustrated with life and the brokenness, so much of the time it's because I have lost sight that God is spirit and God is with me in that brokenness, in that moment, and whatever else is happening is so easy to lose sight of. But if we remember God is spirit, God is invisible, and he is always with his people, there is so much hope for us. Of how Mark Jones says it. So the truth is then that God is spirit. But far from being simply a metaphysical declaration about God's essence, It gets us to the heart of the Christian faith, that God dwells in the hearts of his people. So friends, God is with us. He is spirit. So he can be with all of us and he can be with our believers that we know in the middle of China or North Korea or the middle of Vietnam right now or India. He is fully ever all the time. So there's nowhere any of us as God's people can go where he is not right there with us, holding us, sustaining us, giving us joy, casting out our fear. Now, that's the truth of God's spirituality, his invisibility, but that begins to raise some questions for us when we start thinking about this attribute. Remember, this is incommunicable, so our minds have trouble fully grasping it. So questions are normal with this. The first question is, if God is a spirit, then why does does the Bible speak of God's face and his hands and his arms? We just read that above in Psalm 1611, right? At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So if God is spirit, we've been warned about having images of God, why then does the Bible give us so many descriptions of God's face and his hands and his arm. What's he doing here? This is a a literary device called anthropomorphism there. And anthropomorphism is where you attribute human characteristics to non-humans. Now you see this in movies, you see this in a lot of the cartoons of the past and stuff, where human characteristics are given to non-humans. Isn't that what every Disney Disney cartoon about animals is about? Like, you know, you have all these animals that are doing human things. That's anthropomorphism. That's, but it's a literary device. And God gives us anthropomorphism. He gives us this figurative language to help us understand who he is and how he acts. Friends, he is so different than us. He uses language we understand to help describe his character to us. Remember, we talked about his revelation that if we are to know God, he has to reveal himself to us. And this is one of the things he does in his kindness to us. He uses terms we can get our mind around to help us understand who he is, which means God wants us to know him. So he will use language that we can relate to to help us understand things. For example, Psalm 36, 7, 
The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Does God have wings? No. He's a spirit. But this is an image for us. We can picture wings of something with the ducklings under the wings or the little baby chicks under the wings. We can get our mind around this image, and it's an image of nurturing and protection. And so God uses this figurative language, not because he literally has wings, he's a spirit, but to show us and remind us that I will cover you, I will protect you. You see this in Psalm 51, hide your face from my sins. Well, does he have a face? No, but this is a beautiful picture of him saying, I'm not going to look at your sins anymore, that you are forgiven because of what Christ has done. Or Isaiah 53, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Does God have an arm? No, he's spirit, but he uses imagery of the arm of the Lord because the arm is associated with power. And so there's all these reminders that God is all powerful. He can grab anything and hold us. Or Acts 7.56, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Well, God the Father doesn't have a right hand. He is a spirit, but it's showing his great power and the power that has been given to Christ. So this is all beautiful language. And don't miss the fact in all that anthropomorphism, this is God revealing himself because he wants us to know him. And so he uses our language and things he made in the world to help us understand his character and his nature. So second question, if God is a spirit, does Jesus have a body? Okay, let's answer that question. You see there's actually not an answer to the question on your page. There's three questions for us to answer that question. First of all, does Jesus have a beginning? I think you all know the answer. Does Jesus have a beginning? No, Jesus does not. There was the incarnation where we see him entering the human experience, but he has always for all eternity been the Son of God. There was never a time that there was not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ten trillion years before there was even time... There was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect community. Now, did Jesus always have a body? And the answer is no, he did not. Before, Because remember, matter was something God created in those six days of creation that we're going to be studying about this Sunday. God is spirit. He always has been spirit. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were always spirits before Christ came through the virgin conception and entered into the human experience. He was a spirit. I love how John Piper says it. It is now when it says, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. That's John 6, 46. He means not with physical eyes. The Son of God did not have physical eyes before the incarnation, and that is what he is contrasting our seeing with. Only the Son can see the Father with non-physical, unmediated, direct seeing. Okay, let that hurt your brain for a minute. Before time began, before there was matter for there even to be eyeballs created by God, the Son saw the Father, but with non-physical, unmediated, direct seeing. I have absolutely no idea how to explain that. I hope you can chew on that one and think a little bit more about that. But the perfect community, the Father knew the Son, the Son knew the Spirit. They were all in perfect community with one another. And so there was non-physical, unmediated, direct seeing. We cannot see God spiritually the way the Son of God in unmediated directness can see Him. So, in other words... Us seeing God one day is not going to be the way Jesus saw God because we're bound by our own limitations. So did Jesus have a beginning? No. Did Jesus always have a body? No. His body came when he came in the incarnation, came as God the Son into the human experience. But does Jesus have a body now? And the answer is yes. After the resurrection and ascension, Jesus did not go back to spirit form only he maintained a body and is a resurrection body now. It's different. I love this in Luke 24. As they, the disciples, were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. So just pause right there. His body is different because he didn't walk in through the door. You know, during his earthly ministry and his earthly life, 
He didn't just pop into places. He opened doors and walked through like we would. But here now, resurrection body, the disciples are meeting, and boom, there's Jesus all of a sudden coming from nowhere, now standing in the midst of the disciples. And he says to them, peace to you. Why does he have to say that to them? Because they were startled, and they were frightened, and they thought they saw notice, and they thought they saw a spirit. So he has a physical body, a resurrection body, but the immediate response of the disciples when a body appears out of nowhere in their midst was, this is a spirit here in front of us. And so Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet? As I myself touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And we had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it, and he ate before them. And he wasn't a spirit. He didn't eat and it, like, fall out of him like you see in, like, a ghost cartoon movie. Like, this was, he had a body, right? But he was different. They thought he was a spirit. He appears out of nowhere, but then he, they can touch him, and he eats before them, and the food actually goes into his stomach somehow and doesn't just, like, fall through him like an, a mirage or something. Like, he has a resurrection body, and it's fundamentally different than what we have now, but yet it's still a body, and that's the state he is in in heaven now and for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So if God is spirit, does Jesus have a body? Yes, he does, but he did always have that. Now for us, number three, what does the Bible mean when it says we will see God? Because there's so many texts in scripture that tell us that we will see God. Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Wait, wait, I'm gonna behold your face? We just saw that God doesn't have a face. 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Or 1 John 3, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Okay, wait, so if God is spirit, what does it mean that we will see God? Here's the best answer I can give you for that. Seeing God on that day means we will more fully than now understand the glory of God and we will see Jesus face to face. So when we talk about seeing God one day, it means we will more fully than now understand the glory of God. But we will because Jesus has a resurrection body. We will get to see our Savior in his resurrection body and see him in his resurrection state there. So we will more fully understand the glory of God and we will get to see Jesus face to face. Herman Baving says this, the Bible does indeed teach that the blessed in heaven behold God, but does not describe the nature of that vision, and it maintains God's invisibility everywhere. Every vision of God is therefore not a vision with respect to his essence. Every vision of God presupposes a divine condescension, a revelation by means of which God descends to our level and makes himself known to us. So turn the page there and look at how Piper tries to describe that, and I find this so helpful here. We use the word see to mean that we finally understand and discern the beauty and glory of God after being blind to it. Like when we say, oh, now I see. So this is what we're talking about. When we talk about we see God, we're going to understand him in ways that we do not right now. Look at how Piper goes on. He says, and the second way is that in the narrative of the Bible, we see the glory of God, and finally we will see him face to face through Christ by seeing Christ. So we see God by seeing Jesus. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So when it talks about seeing God, we will one day, friends, get to see Christ. And we will get to understand the glory of God in ways that we have not ever before. Now this raises our last question, number four. Are we also 
spiritual. Now, when you read different authors, I told you, you know, as we pulled from lots of books for this study, some of the people will not put this as an incommunicable attribute. Some authors will actually put this as a communicable attribute that God shares with us. And the reason is for what we'll get to in a few weeks in Sunday morning is Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so they say, look, part of what makes us the image of God is we have a spiritual nature, which we do. We have a spiritual part of us that worships God and that knows God and longs to know God. We have a spiritual part of us. And they say, so it is communicable. I would say, yes, that is true, but it's not communicable in the way we typically think about it. Our experience of being spiritual is so different than God's. We have a spirit, but we also have a body. And depending on who you hold to, we either have two parts, we're bipartite, or we're three parts, tripartite. Some people say we're body and spirit, soul is one, or some say we're body, soul, and spirit. But the point is, there's still a body along with our spirit, so we're not spiritual in the way God is being immaterial. But also, don't forget, friends, one day we will receive resurrection bodies for all eternity. We're not going to be spirits floating on clouds in heaven, strumming imaginary harps the rest of our eternal existence. The day is coming when the earth as we know it ends, and God makes all things new, and that includes us. We will have physical bodies for all eternity with everything perfect. I love how Philippians 3 describes it. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, not to become spirits, but to be like his glorious body by the power that enables, enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so the truth of Scripture is not that we die and our spirit lives on and that's all we have for eternity. The truth is when we die, our spirit does live on. But for all the believers, when the new heavens and new earth come, we will get resurrection bodies and we will have material bodies perfected for all of eternity. So I would argue in light of that, we are spiritual, yes, but this is not communicable. This is our spirituality is so different than God's. This is an incommunicable attribute of God. Now, before we go on to our questions, I want you to see this from Rosemary Jensen. It's a book we have in the Resource Center called Praying the Attributes of God. Because the reality, friends, as I mentioned earlier, when we forget God's spirituality and visibility and we forget God's presence, we let fear control our hearts and we let anxiety control our hearts and we let so many things happen in our lives. And here's her prayer in light of this attribute of God. She says, forgive me, Lord, for doubting your presence just because I cannot see you. I too often do what I want, not considering you, because you're invisible to my human eyes. I've not even appreciated that you are a parent in creation, and especially in your written word. I repent and will look for you in everything. Now, something I want you to talk about in your small groups tonight is how do we remember God in our daily lives? Because that influences everything else we do. So turn to the back. We're about to split up into our small groups for discussion tonight. Here's what I want you to talk about. First of all, reread those quotes on the front page, that Spurgeon quote we talked about, God studying God should lead us to humility, but unfortunately we all know people who study about God and they end up very proud and arrogant about it. Why does that happen? How can a study of God and his greatness cause us to become proud? So how then do we guard our hearts, friends? How do we pursue studying God in such a way that doesn't lead to pride in our lives but leads to humility? And then do you agree that the more we think about God, the more we'll be lost in wonder? Sometimes we study about God and our hearts are full of wonder. Sometimes they're not. So what are the obstacles in our lives to being lost in the wonder of God? Based on that prayer we just read from Rosemary Jensen, are we prone to doubt God's presence and forget about him and his will because we cannot see him? Maybe we can even think through what are the effects of my life when I forget God's presence because I cannot see him? So how do we grow in remembering God's presence all during the day? God's invisible. So how do we grow in remembering that? Now, 
This is kind of the repeat question. Almost every week we'll have a question like this. So if you want to know what the question is going to be every week, this is going to be one of them. How does remembering this attribute of God help us pursue holiness now? How does this attribute of God help affect how we pray? And how does this attribute of God help us in our times of trial? So if you just want to kind of be thinking ahead every week, you'll probably see questions like this on every week because these attributes have much application to our lives of how we pray, how we view trials, how we pursue holiness. How about number five? Should we try to picture God when we pray? I had a Sunday school teacher as a kid who used to tell us that he would always imagine God as a tree when he prayed. And I'm like, even as a kid, I'm like, that's really weird. And the more I studied the attributes of God, the more I'm like, that is really bizarre. Like a tree does such injustice, but why? So should we try to picture God when we pray? So how if not, how do we think correctly about God when we are praying to him and we're thinking about him? And then finally, it's not a text we looked at tonight, but I want you to read together 1 John 4, 11 and 12. And how should God's invisibility affect how we relate in community? Because in 1 John, there's an interesting connection between life in, in Christian community and remembering God's spirituality. So I want you to think about those things. So as before, we're going to divide into three groups. We're going to start with, we have the couples group with Ronnie and Sheila in room one. We have the ladies group with Trish in room two. And we have the men's group with William and with me in room four. Feel free to go to whichever of those would best serve you and your family. Again, you're free to change up groups. If some weeks couples want to stay together and some weeks want to go different ways, whatever would serve your family, you are welcome to do. So have fun as we continue to think about the incommunicable attributes of God and another one that makes our brain hurt, his invisibility. Enjoy your groups tonight.